0: Good morning. morning. We live in an information age. Since the invention of the computer, we can compile, store and retrieve massive amounts of data with just a click of a button. And such technology has revolutionized how we live and what is possible today. Businesses and even political campaigns have learned how to harness that information to serve their own purposes. Even when we book an airline ticket, you will see a custom list of suggested hotels immediately. Such applications take an enormous amount of data and they organize it in such a way to then apply to you very specifically and often they are also very impersonal. Even social media platforms also take enormous amount of data to help us increase our connections with one another. If I want, I can pull up my phone right now and with a few swipes, I can see some vacation pictures that I took last summer. It is also possible what you had for dinner last night or how you celebrated your most recent birthday. Yet the knowledge that we glean about others from social media is selectively limited. We post what we want to be known and we want what we want others to see. So, it is packaged in a very purposeful way, and it is relatively superficial. But even the knowledge that we have of those we know most deeply and seek to get to know at the most deepest level, even that knowledge is really incomplete and imperfect at the end of the day. We misunderstand, and we are misunderstood. We make assumptions and wrong inferences. Even when our knowledge of others is more or less accurate, as sinners, we can sometimes misuse that knowledge to hurt others or shame others or distance ourselves from others relationally. But you know, the difficulty of knowing the other person isn't just out there with the other people. We even have difficulty sometimes knowing ourselves. We experience this, don't we? After we do something, we think, what was my motivation in doing that? When everything is going fine, you still feel dull and a sense of lack. When you feel like crying, and sometimes you are unsure why you feel that way. That memory that I recall from my childhood, am I actually recalling that correctly? Or are there other factors that don't tell the whole story? What blind spots do I have? Are there things about me that I'm not seeing that I should be able to see? And am I, I'm, say, I'm saying all these things because we have a clear view of our creaturely limita- limitations. When we know that, we can better appreciate and stand in awe of God's divine attributes. And see how these glorious attributes of God apply to us at a very personal level. So we are creatures of limitation, but our God is not. So this morning, we will consider Psalm 139. So please turn with me to Psalm 139. And if you are taking notes and want to know the outline and where we are going, here it is. Because of God's nature or character, we are fully known, we are never alone, and we are sovereignly fashioned. Because of God's nature and character, we are fully known, never alone, and sovereignly fashioned. So my hope for us this morning is that we will consider a few of God's divine attributes and marvel at how he exercised those attributes in relation to us. And along the way, I hope to offer some application to the truths that we hear. But before that, let us come to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our God and you know everything and you have ordained everything and even you have sent your son for our sake so that we can now be reconciled to you and have a meaningful relationship with you. And we now recognize, Lord, that we are limited as creatures and we often struggle, we fear, we we are uh, not sure of what the future holds for us. And in the midst of that, Lord, help us to understand your glorious attributes, your character, so that we would be rooted and grounded in your everlasting arms. And give us grace, Father, to hear these truths and be reminded of these truths. For your glory alone we ask these things. Amen. Now, as we started thinking that our knowledge of ourselves is always limited, today in this passage, we can see... Our God has extensive knowledge. And not just knowledge, he has extensive knowledge of us. This psalm is intensely personal. Now as we begin to look at this psalm, one thing that we can know is that this psalm is a psalm of David. You you can see that just as we start. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Usually psalms have some backstory, but this psalm doesn't have a story. We don't know what David was in the middle of when he considered these things when he wrote them down. We see that at the beginning where David says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He just starts off like that. And we will see this statement again as we approach to the end of this psalm in verse 23 where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And so the, 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 those two statements bookend the psalm. And this is, not, this is not an inflective psalm or something where david looks inside of himself for wanting to know something about himself we see here david is focusing outside of himself beholding god and we know about the lord and understand our meaning and purpose just as how david does here so now let me point out the structure or the themes that we can see in this psalm okay verses 1 to 6 we can see that as one section in our bibles Verses 7 to 12, and then verses 13 to 18 are the other two. And after that, David closes the psalm in verses 19 to 24. And in each of these sections, there are specific themes that D- David is considering here. If you look at verses 1 again, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. David here is pondering on the all-knowingness of God or what we call his omniscience, that he knows all things. In the next section from verses 7 to 12, in verse 7 we see, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And David is pondering here the ever-presence of God, that he is omnipresent, he is everywhere all the time. And then in the next section, from verses 13 to 18, we see in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And we have the statement statement that we are so familiar with, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, he says. And what David is considering here is the all-powerfulness of God, his omnipotence. And in light of these themes, David reflects on the character of God in these one, two, and three sections. And in conclusion of verses 19 to 24, we see David's response. We will see what is David's reaction to having now considered the character of God looks like. So let us explore these things as we look at Psalm 139 this morning. I will will not read the whole text for us, but we will walk through each verse and see the truths to inform us. So first point, because of God's character, we are fully known. In verse 1, David says, "O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Now the word there for known is not simply that God has some knowledge of you. Or that he has downloaded information about you from the cloud. Or he can throw out a fact sheet and write a resume of you. That is not what is being said here. This is God's omniscience. He knows everything and nothing can be hidden from God. And for David, this is not some abstract truth that he just keeps in his theological box. This truth applies to David. The fact that God knows everything means that he knows everything and he understands that clearly. And then in verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows when we sit and when we rise. This is to say all our actions from first to last, God knows all our thoughts. When our thoughts are conscious or unconscious, He understands them perfectly. And verse 3, You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows every single unspoken word, even before it is on our tongue. He knows it altogether. That's how he discerns our activities from when we start our day to when we hit our pillows. Whether those actions be public or private, God knows all and sees it all. And this knowledge goes far beyond mere observation of seeing what we do. It's not like this CCTV camera of God's observing everything that we are doing. No, this knowledge goes far beyond that. Instead, he searches, he discerns, he's acquainted with all our ways. Verse 5 says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. God has set out boundaries that we cannot pass. You cannot live anywhere where God does not want you to live. You cannot add one day to your existence or subtract from it that God has not already counted out for you. He has helped you from behind and from before. This should help us to know that our God is in control. And at the same time, we will be comforted to know that we are never too far away from him. He is always right there with us and for us. Knowing us, discerning, and acquainting himself to us. So, friends, this speaks to the completeness of God's knowledge and care for us. This is a kind of intimate knowledge that only God has. This section points out to the intimate relationship that God has with David. It is a statement of intimacy and affection. God knows David, he is intimately acquainted with David. He even wants to be with David. And this is the basis because he knows us fully. He guides us, he protects us, and he directs us. God's knowledge is not just a, in one some terabytes of data. No, it translates into action for us. And it perfectly aligns what he deems best for us. So brothers and sisters, God's knowledge of you is just as complete as it was for David. So think for a moment, if someone takes an interest in you, and they sit beside you, and they ask you questions to get to know you, you feel loved and cared for by that, don't you? If you're married, and when you anticipate what your wife is thinking, just by looking at her, Just from years of knowing her, even when she doesn't say anything, you know what she is thinking. You can tell there is a level of intimacy between you, don't you? And that itself communicates that you know her, and when you act accordingly, she feels cared for, which communicates a profound love to her. Now friends, God does that billion times better than we ever could. So consider the care and love God shows us in careful attention to you and your ways. When you woke up this morning, God knew precisely what you would do first. Did you brush your teeth first? Did you make your coffee? Did you roll back to sleep to get some extra rest? Or maybe this morning as you drove to church or on the other days when you drive to work, what thoughts did turn around in your heart and mind? What did you think about? And God knows everything that you are thinking. He knows your fears, your hopes, desires, your routines, thought patterns, and even disappointments. He knows them all. Now, understanding that God knows so intimately, isn't it better to go to God in prayer, to seek him, knowing that he already knows everything in our minds, particularly when we are unsure or taking up a new task, even though it is very trivial. I think we will do well if we first consciously bring them to God in prayer and ask him to evaluate our thoughts, to help you discern your thoughts. For instance, who do you most want to talk when you are burdened or discouraged? Is it not that friend who can finish the sentence before you say it? When you're having trouble putting your thoughts into words, your spouse already knows what you're trying to say. What a blessing is to have a friend who can call your bluff if you are not honest with yourself and him. Well, we all long to have that kind of person in our lives, don't we? That is the kind of person you most want to talk when things are heavy. So then let Psalm 139 compel you to realize you have this kind of friend in the Lord and that no one can ever know you better than he does. So cast all your cares on him because he knows you and he cares for you. You know, we should praise God for parents, siblings, spouses, roommates, and friends with whom we can share with and relate to in this way. Those are good gifts from God. And if you don't have one, ask God to send someone into your life. But ultimately, let us make the Lord our nearest companion. He knows us best and he loves us the most. Notice in verse 6, how the psalmist responds to these truths. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Why does David say such knowledge is too wonderful for me? If I told you this morning that I know everything about you, what you did this morning, what you did yesterday and the day before, and say that I can actually prove that I know all together, you would not hear that as welcome news, right? Then why does David say that this is wonderful news that God knows everything about him? This is because of God's character, beloved. Our God is entirely holy and loving in his character and he has the power to do what he wishes. So David knows God is holy and all his ways are right. And that he never uses his knowledge of you to shame you or to use that against you. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is for you, even in the midst of that. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly at the right time. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knows your entire history, even those memories that are blurred in your mind right now. God sees with crystal clarity and knows everything that you will do even in the future. So when the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly, he precisely knew how ungodly you were and how ungodly you would be. And he knew every sin that needed payment for. So brother and sister, think of the sin that you committed this past week. The time when you failed God. And how you lived in the passions of your flesh. God fully knows them. And is not surprised by anything that you have ever thought or done. So when Jesus chose to die to forgive you of your sin. There is zero chance that he will go back on his word. Zero chance that he will go back on his word. He knew it all from the beginning. And that is the reason it is wonderful news. I know it is tempting to linger on our past guilt. Feel the need to make some penance or atonement on our own. Or fear, live in fear that maybe we sin too much for Christ to forgive us. And so we continue to blame ourselves for the things of the past. Or we may feel this vague sense of worry about how God feels about us. You might be thinking, surely he will forgive the sins of others... But does he do the same for me? Friends, God knows everything. He knows every detail of every sin. And still he he sent his son to die for you. His word proclaims that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So friends, let's rest in God's complete knowledge of us. Please do not run away from him. There is nowhere you can go that he will not see or know you. And know if you have repented of your sin, you have put your faith in Christ, you can entirely be forgiven and made clean of every bit of it. And if you're here today and you have not repented of your sins, you have not put your faith in Christ, Have you ever thought about the fact that God knows everything about you? Perhaps everything you have said and done is a mystery of those around you, but it's not to God. God sees each one of us with a penetrating gaze. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to his eyes, to whom we must give account. The wonderful news for you today is that God who sees and knows you, but he does not wish to torment you with that knowledge or to shame you with that knowledge, but he he calls you to be honest with yourself and honest with him about who you are and come to him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you will receive forgiveness and grace for your sins He washes and covers those who come to him, recognizing their guilt. We see, because of our sin, we are naked and exposed. But Isaiah 61 verse 10, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Because God knows everything, each of us is fully known to him. And this is really good news friends. Secondly, because of who God is, we are never alone. Let's look at verses seven to 12. In this section, God's omnipresence is in view here. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now these are rhetorical questions. The answer is nowhere. Where can I go from you? Where can I flee from you? By asking these questions, he states God is always everywhere. He is not confined or limited to space. This is once again a statement of comfort. No matter where I go, my Lord is with me. The children's catechism describes this as, where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he Always sees me. We can never step out of God's presence. Everything that we do is in full view of the Lord. And if you meditate on this fact and you ponder on this truth, it will change the way that you will live. When you serve sacrificially and no one is around to see that or notice that, God still sees. And He knows. And when you endure hardship without grumbling and it keeps getting more challenging and you keep trusting God, our God still sees. When your eyes are not fixed on the Lord, but they are looking at something impure, God sees that too. When you do something in secret to honor him or dishonor him, he sees that too. We can never step out of God's presence. And when it is that we are most tempted to sin, that's when we want to be alone, isn't it? We are tempted to commit sins in private that we will never even dare to commit when we have others around us. Psalm 139 reminds us that we are never truly alone. So cultivating a constant awareness of that God is present with us will transform on how we fight sin. I think we are sometimes tempted to try and flee God's presence when we sin. The psalmist begins this section by saying it is impossible to flee from God. We would never want to flee when we are in the right relationship with God and are assured of his love for us, or to hide from God. But if we ever doubt that God is for us, that desire to flee from him would seem very natural. Think of Adam and Eve. They tried to hide from God when they sinned in the garden. And in their nakedness, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we see, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord. They are hiding from God among the trees of the garden, but we can be sure that God knew precisely what they were doing. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, we see Jonah in rebellion hopped on the boat to go in the other direction. We see in Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When we think about God rightly, running from him will be a very foolish thing to do. We can understand, but we can understand the impulse when we feel cornered by him and want to rebel against him and his watchful eye and presence, we want to run away from him. And maybe this morning, you are not relating to Jonah in this way, in this dramatic way of running from God. Maybe not in the way that feels like running. But let me ask you this. When you stumble into sin, and then you feel a wave of guilt and conviction, and when a remorse that comes on you, what do you do in those immediate moments afterwards? Do you try to push those thoughts of God out of your mind at that moment? Are you reluctant to turn to him in prayer and confession? Is picking up the Bible and going to God's word the last thing that you want to do? If so, perhaps you are subtly trying to flee from God's presence. The psalmist knows that God's presence is an actual greatest comfort and our only hope. David is a man who wants to feel God's presence here in this context. He is very encouraged by the thought that God is always with him. Look at verse 8, how he marvels. I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now this is hyperbolic language. David is not necessarily talking about dying and going to heaven or dying and going, to, going down to hell. But if he goes to the highest possible place that he can go, which is heaven, or down to the lowest, which is the grave, he knows... God will still be with him. Verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Again, we are talking about directions here. Up and down. Morning. Wings of the morning. East. And the sea to the west. Even there, God, what does it say? God's hand will punish him, will judge him, will it strike him down? No. David says, even there, your hand will lead me, guide me. Even there, no matter where I am, his right hand holds me. God's right hand is the hand of favor will lay hold of me. And this is precisely where Jonah found himself when he tried to flee the Lord. I will read Jonah chapter 2 verses 2 to 9. I will read some parts of it. Where it says, Out of the belly of the sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. And he says, Jonah says, Then I said, I have driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Can you imagine putting yourself in Jonah's place, where he was cast into the middle of the sea? he knew that his death was certain. And then he saw this great fish coming and then he knew he was gone. But he was never safer than in the belly of the fish in the middle of the sea because God was there. And God appointed salvation for him that day. So consider Psalmist's words again, verse 10. Even when I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. None of us here this morning knows what unforeseen dangers or challenges we will face in the future. We cannot predict it. We can all keep ourselves imagining terrifying circumstances and feel alone and hopeless at night. But in his kindness, we don't need to know those things. For the Lord gives us grace that we need today. All that we need to know from this passage is that we are never alone, never hopeless, if God is our hope. That is what we heard earlier in our scripture reading as well. John chapter 10 verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. So friends, Jesus, our good shepherd, is always with us. He knows us and he lays down his life for us. Sometimes even though when God is there with us, we still feel we are in the dark, don't we? There is stubborn darkness that we feel that is looming. In verses 11 and 12, if you see, the psalmist uses imagery here of darkness to describe seemingly hopeless situations. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Again, these words are the words of comfort, friends. David ponders on his omnipresence. God glorifying God, not being afraid of God, not running from God, but knowing and comforted that God is with him no matter where he goes. But there is still darkness. Darkness is fearful because we don't know what dangers are lurking beneath or what we cannot see. But the psalmist is saying that even when we cannot see any light, he can see light. He has hope. When he does not know what is out there, he's blinded. David turns to God and he knows that nothing appears dark to God. He sees it all precisely the same. Now what an expression of faith is this? Did you notice that the psalmist is doing here? The psalmist has learned that his security is not established by his ability to perceive what is out there and then gain control. That's not what his security, I'll repeat that. David's security is not established by his ability to perceive what is out there and then gain control of it. His assessment of the situation is not the defining term here. He says that even when it is dark to me, I know it is light to God. It is not dark to him. Those places and situations that create the most fear in us, those unknown things, are not unknown to God the night is as bright as the day to God and he sees all situations perfectly perhaps you're facing an unforeseen medical diagnosis and you're gripped with fear God knows exactly what you're facing and it is not unknown to him and he will be with you every step of your journey Now, children, do you sometimes feel afraid of dark? Maybe you're lying on the bed and the lights are out and you can't see things in the room as you could before and you get fearful. David, who wrote this psalm, knows what it is like to be afraid in the dark. We read of times when he was in a dark cave and some people tried to kill him, and it was frightening. As in this psalm, darkness is understandable because it creates fear. It is a natural experience. And it is okay then to let your parents know that you are afraid. Okay? And ask them to comfort you. It is fine to do that. That is good and appropriate and right. But the next time you feel afraid, think about the fact that God is right there with you. Next time you feel afraid, know that even though you cannot see anything, God can see you and he can see right through you. And be confident that God is with you. And then what you can do? You can ask God to help you not to be afraid because he is there with you. Now, you know, there are other types of darkness that can overwhelm us. Depression has been referred to as a stubborn darkness. If you have experienced depression, you know what it feels like. I can't see anything in front of me, hardly even to put the next foot in the front of the other. And we know what it is like to be gripped by depression, and it is rightfully described as darkness. When we all feel hopeless, we can't imagine it clouds everything. This passage teaches that God is not overwhelmed even when we cannot see the light. God sees the light to the point that whatever seems dark for us is still light for him. So be comforted by that truth, friends. No matter how hopeless you may feel, sometimes that does not mean our situation is beyond hope. God is with you and he will not give up on you or let you go. In Jesus we now have our Emmanuel, God, with us. And he is with us because he he was even raised from the dead. Just as darkness is even light for our God, Jesus could not stay dead, but was alive, risen and dwells in us. So take comfort, my brother. Lift your discouraged hearts. Dear sisters, because of who God is, we are never alone. Now the psalmist's reflection on the darkness here actually leads him to consider another aspect of god's character in relationship to us this leads us to our third point because of who god is we are sovereignly fashioned we will read that in verses 13 to 18 so we we have been talking about darkness as frightening to us yet god sees it perfect clarity He now considers the creative, now David considers the creative power in creating human life. We see his power. The psalmist doesn't marvel at God's power in creating human life in general. He marvels at how God formed and fashioned him. So so the end of this last section, David says, look at what God has fashioned and done in the dark and secret places. Verse 13, he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your, works, uh, are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So we see here that God cares for us and his affection was even upon us while we were being knit together in our mother's womb. God is intricately involved in our lives, even as life begins in the mother's womb. As David, as he ponders and thinks of these things, saying, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together. Now this is our God, friends. He is involved. The all-powerful God is involved in carefully fashioning us. Those who know what stitching or knitting looks like can probably understand the attention to detail that is required to make something. And our God is so much involved in our lives. Our God is not a God who sets things in motions and sees how they turned out in, turn out into. The, the way to we come into this earth is not molecules and cells taking a course of action, friends. It is God is the grand designer and we have to understand the weight of it. There is a lot of debate going around not to call the child in the mother's womb a living being and we need to be very careful not to buy into that lie and suppress the truth that is so clear to us in this text. In Genesis 1 when we see God say that let there be light the pre-incarnate Christ brought all things into existence Colossians chapter 1 says, He is before all things and all things hold together. Jesus is holding everything together by his sovereign hand. The stuff is not just flying apart in chaos and at the seams. So yes, friends, God is involved in everything happening all around us and he is involved in you being shaped in your mother's womb. And so in verse 14 he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Yes, we understand that we are wonderfully made because we are created in the image of God. But how are we fearfully made? It means that there are so many processes around us and he is not even, and he is even involved in shaping inside of you And if you you are aware of half of what your body is doing at any given time, it will fill you with such trembling that you would dare not move. Yet, who is in control of all of that? Our body, the way that I'm able to stand here and even speak, it's only because God is holding me, isn't it? So who is in control in our lives? Not us, our God. So next time you're concerned about what is happening with your child or what is happening with you, wouldn't it be so good to ask God to comfort you, heal you, help you, even before you turn to Google for help diagnose the situation? there will will be always things in our body that you will not be in control of. So this passage teaches us that because God created and fashioned human life, it is precious to him that he is the one who is sovereign over life, and it would be suitable for us to proclaim this to this world, and often even remind ourselves that God is sovereign over life. Now when we think of this passage, we typically think of babies, and that is right. And that is the image that we see here. But notice that this passage continues. It has in view that every one of the day was formed for David. The baby that is secretly fashioned and formed in the secret place of the womb is the same person who is now fully grown and is now communing and relating to God as a grown adult. David is an adult here, but he is still remembering and pondering on these truths. Meaning, this is every person we have tremendous value in the sight of God. The value of life does not decrease when we lose our cute and cuddly creatures. We see in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written, even one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We have been written in his book, friends, and the days that have not yet lived, even that God knows. So don't think even those days that you, have gone, that, that you have gone from the presence of God, he's with you and his right hand is upon you. So as David ponders on God's power, he says in verses 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. If you want to know God's thoughts, what does that mean? Read the Bible. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. So friends, because of who God is, we are fully known. We are never alone. And we are sovereignly designed. And then he says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Now, what has happened here? We learn that God knows us well, that he's in control, and we are never alone, and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then David suddenly says, slay the wicked? Did David shift gears or change the topic altogether? No, not really. What is happening here is that in light of all that we see and learn about God, All the truths that David has meditated, that he is omniscient, we are not, that he is omnipresent and we are not, he is omnipotent and we are not, and even darkness is as light to God, and because of all these truths he acknowledges, God has his protector. He will fight for David. This is not David turning vindictive and hateful all of a sudden. David here is showing and displaying a single-minded commitment to the Lord. He has observed God's character and nature and is pointing here to God's holiness, that God is holy and set apart and that anyone who is going to be opposed to him, David is saying, I'm still going to be with God. David desires that God's holiness and righteousness be done on this earth. These wicked men are not just men of different different opinions. They are men of bloodshed, unjust people, who destroyed those made in God's image? Look at verse 20. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. How is David speaking of the Lord here? With reverence. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. He's saying they have become my enemies. Now you might ask, but what does Jesus say we are to do with our enemies? We have to love our enemies. Hate and love seem like they contradict one another. But if you think of it, if you are a person of love, you are a person of hate. Really, because I love children, I hate killing babies. I hate those who do abortions. But I will love them so that they will come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will be forgiven and submit to the holiness of God so that on the judgment day, they will escape God's wrath. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he who died for us, who is risen again, who is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God and is coming back again to judge the living and the dead, whoever believes in him will not perish under the righteous judgment of God that is coming upon all men. But whoever believes in him will be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. So you hate the enemies of God and the wickedness that they do but you also show mercy to them and give them the gospel so that they will not perish under the mighty hand of God. So in conclusion, Psalm 139 verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. We know that already but notice how he uses that. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So a bit of uh, application here. Steve Lawson says that there are three ways our sin hurts. Our sin hurts God. God doesn't want us to walk in these sinful, wicked ways. He wants us to walk in the way of righteousness. And God is more concerned about your sin than he is concerned about the sins of the wicked in the world. Because God is more concerned about the sin in his church than outside. God is dealing with the wicked. He will do that. And one day he will judge. But we need to check ourselves, friends. Search me, O God. I already mentioned that there are times we will not be able to see the different ways we sin against God. But he knows So it is good for us to ask God to show us that we can deal with that sin so that I may confess this before God so that he will receive the worship that he rightly deserves. So friends, if you are convicted of some sin, don't just confess and move on but work hard on identifying the different ways the sin is working on your heart and weed them out one by one. Secondly, Our sin hurts others. Everything that we do hurts others. My friends, we do not sin on an island. It is not like I do what I want to do and it doesn't hurt anybody else. No, it does hurt. It affects the people around you. And the sinful choices that you make, it affects others. So be mindful of that. David says to see if there be any grievous way in me. You know that, right? When your dots not doing spiritually well, it immediately reflects on your relationships. You become more irritated, snappy, upset, complaining, grumbling. And there are many other ways that when we sin, it does hurt others. So let's be watchful of that. And the third person we hurt is ourselves. That's very clear. Sin affects our relationship with God. When we continue in sin, our heart becomes callous, hardens slowly, but gradually, and we find ourselves losing our first love. We hurt ourselves and put ourselves in dangerous positions whenever we reject the all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful God. This is self-harm. I am saddened when brothers or sisters who are in sin and do not want to turn to God are further harming themselves. Repent of the sin and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ who will forgive you, cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness. And that is the way of everlasting, my friends. Daily repentance, turning away from sin, killing sin and running to Jesus by faith. This is the way knowing God and no other way because he is the one who truly saves He is the one who will walk alongside us no matter what, who leads us and guides us in the way of everlasting. God knows you and through Jesus Christ, you can know him and we can relate to him and we can think our thoughts before him. And as we live our lives before him, welcoming his gaze and communion with us, asking God to test you, to know you and to change you, There is no greater joy in this life than knowing Jesus and being known by him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel that you, the God of all creation, know us, You know our name, and you know every inner being, even our thoughts. And we marvel that even then you love us. Father, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing in your sight. Father, we pray that we would pursue holiness as we should, and that we would relate to you in this week and in the days to come in a manner that is pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, that you would hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.